0: The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, my name's Pete. Glad you guys are here with us. If you're new to Holy Cross, I want to thank you guys for coming. Uh, I know sometimes it's hard to get up in the morning, and especially after, um, you know, mourning the loss of just uh, being squashed last night. Uh, that's a sports thing. Um, if, if you have no idea what's going on, then I'll just skip over um, but glad that you're here. We're here to worship God. We're here to turn our affection to Him and to enjoy what, um, uh, what He's prepared for us today. And um, if you're interested about taking the next step, like what's, what's next? How do I get more involved in Holy Cross? Then that Connect card is there for you, or you can go to the visitor information table. You can get a gift. Uh, there's a bag there that gives, us, gives you some information about who we are. Um, but we would love for you to take the next step, getting plugged in a community here at Holy Cross. We call those life groups. They're weekly groups that meet throughout town throughout the week, and it's a way that we can build relationships and connect with others and grow in our faith. And so, um, let's begin uh, this morning, as we get into God's Word, by turning our attention to God's Word in Luke chapter 5. You know, each week, as you're you're finding your place, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, each week uh, in this series, we've been talking about applying certain practices. Applying certain practices or disciplines in our life that are an expression of our application of our theology, about what we believe, what do we believe about God, And how do we live that out? And so let's look at Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. After this, he went out, he's talking about Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, this, this rhythm that we're talking about, this application of theology, is it comes out of a conviction that, Theology doesn't end with just learning information, about gathering information and intellectually becoming uh, a more informed person about what the Bible says, but it is about applying what, what we believe about God and the Bible in our lives, in, in our daily lives. And here's the, here's the big idea with this series. We believe that certain things about the Bible are not only true, but ought to truly change our lives. And we don't really believe in these things unless they are applied in our life. So real theology is understood when it's applied. And so our goal is transformation. Not just learning information about God, but transformation about the Christian faith. And it's called Rhythm. The series is called Rhythm. It's living out these repeated practices uh, of repetition in our life. And remember the the five-letter acronym that we presented to you a couple weeks ago. The acronym spells out the word BLESS. And each word represents an action or an application of our beliefs and our theology. The B uh, starts with, starts, uh, it's, it's, it means bless. It stands for bless. That we should bless God in praise and admiration and, and worship and bless others as God has blessed us. The L is listen. That we want to listen to God through prayer and reading of scripture and listen empathetically to the needs of others. Eat. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today. I know you're excited about that. We're talking about EAT. We want to practice sharing intentional time together with others, with, with God at the Lord's Supper, and with, with our friends in community, but also with strangers and, and outsiders uh, in, our, in our neighborhood. The S, the first S, stands for speak. We speak to God in praise and we speak truth and love to others. And, and lastly, Sabbath. This is about resting from our work as an act of obedient worship to God. Resting. Recreating, celebrating God's um, work in our life. And so we're encouraging you to try out these things in this series, but not only just in this five weeks, but, but we hope that these things, as you practice them, will be habits in your life, that you'll learn to live out these things every week and every day, um, not just in this uh, month, but, but ongoing. So we talk about eating this morning, and maybe this excites you. You're thinking, finally, a Christian discipline I can get on board with. Finally a Christian practice, a Christian this is this is my kind of theology. Or you're scratching your head and thinking, eating? Like we're really spending a, a whole Sunday sermon talking about eating? Is this really a good use of time? Is this what does this have to do with Christian theology? What does eating have to do with faith? How is eating a Christian practice? And I think that this confusion sometimes is stem from from the, from a, a flawed idea that there are some things in life that are that are uh, sacred. Okay, we'll call these things holy. There are some holy things in our life. These are the things that God's really uh, really uh, concerned about. These are the things that happen in church. And then there's things that are um, ordinary. You know, we'll call these things common. And so there's there's holy things and there's common things. And we think that there's certain activities that God cares about and other activities that are really up to us to figure out. You know, what we should what we should uh, believe, and, and how we should engage in them. And God has little, if any, uh, real, explicit interest in those things. And maybe eating is one of those things. You know, let me give you an example of how we've seen this holy and, and, and common work out, maybe, in the life of the church. Um, I, I might meet somebody, this has happened before, meet somebody for the first time. Maybe it's at a, a golfing foursome, and we go out, and there's a, a friend who's been brought along, and this person doesn't know me, I don't know this person, and this person's talking, he's just living in the ordinary, he's just being himself. And, and the whole time, I mean, he is just filth and flowering filth and just cursing up a storm, right, the whole time. And then, you know, about an hour, a few holes in, he's like, so what do you do? <laughs> I'm a pastor. And the apologies start flowing, right? Oh, I'm so, and then the rest of the time, I mean, he's just on his best behavior and very, very careful and very proper and, 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 and saying things like, darn, you know, just like... <laughs> They're operating out of this flawed view that there's something particularly, in particular, less holy about cursing in front of me than in front of anyone else. That there's something particularly offensive to God to curse in front of a, a pastor or even at church. There's something particularly offensive. You know, God hears you when you are at church. He hears you when you're with a pastor. He hears you when you're alone. He hears you when you're with your friends or at work. He cares what you wear when you're at church. He cares what you wear when you're out uh, partying and socializing. He cares about your whole life and everything in it. He cares about your thoughts, whether you're thinking them and, and, and then it comes out in words. And He cares about your thoughts, whether they are kept silent altogether. So... Life isn't about the separation of holy and common, but viewing our lives in light of 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says this, I'll remind you of it. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do for the glory of God. You see, this verse in context of people are coming to Paul, the Apostle Paul has written 1 Corinthians, and they say, what does God care about? Does he care about how I participate in this particular activity? Does he care about how I participate in this particular activity? Does this... How does this relate to following Jesus? Is this important as it relates to following Jesus and knowing Him and being a Christian? And does it really matter if it's not spiritual? And Paul says, everything matters. Whether you eat or drink and and, and anything you do, we do it, it is meant to, to be lived out as an impression of God's glorious work in us and for us. As an act of praise to Him. Everything you do. And so we look, we look at Luke 5, and the story is about Jesus eating with Levi, who's a tax collector, and we'll learn about what that means in a moment. He's teaching us about this rhythm, a rhythm of, of believing and applying when it comes to eating, an activity that isn't secular because there are no secular things. All things belong to God. All things are meant to be lived out as, as uh, unto his glory and praise. And eating is so important. And so we're going to look at three things. The friendship, we're going to look at the friendship at the meal, we're going to look at the obstacle in the meal, and we're going to look at the power of the meal. And so we'll look at this Luke 5, and we'll look at the friendship, the obstacle, and the power as it relates to eating. First, let's look at the friendship at the meal. You know, in order to get a handle on this story, I I want you to Let's talk briefly about two things. One, we should, we should realize the role of the tax collector in, in Jesus' time, and we should look at the role of the meal in Jesus' time, because both of these are really important to understanding the story. First, the tax collector. Maybe you know a little bit about the context of this story and tax collectors in Rome at the time of Jesus, uh, but they were social outcasts. They were uh, cheaters. They cheated people out of money. They uh, could basically charge whatever they wanted to. And what we learned about Levi in particular is his tax booth his toll booth, as it as as it might be, is is by the sea along a very popular trade route, and so you couldn't get to work or leave work without running into Levi, and he would be the one that is interrupting your day after a long day of work. He'd be the one saying how much you got. He'd be the one collecting tax on your work. He'd be the one cheating you out of money. And if you, and even worse than this, Levi was a Jew, and they were in. Uh, Roman occupied uh, area and he was kind of a traitor to his own people you know he worked for the government who oppressed them and who cheated them he's they he sold these tax collectors sold out their family and friends for profit he's he's just not a good guy commonly known as just cheaters people you don't want to spend time with if you're at a party and you find out someone works for the IRS you're not going to hang out with them (laughs) But these people are, these are just corrupt and um, not good friends. Second, the meal. What's the importance of this meal? Well, one of the central questions of the Jewish people at this time was this. With whom should I eat? It really was. Like, this was such an important question, one that they asked often and they understood very clearly. Who can I eat with? Who is, who is it okay to eat with? Who can I have over to my house? Whose house can I visit? See, holiness was so bound up in, in, in cleanness and in cleanliness in this time. We learn that this most clearly in the Old Testament book of, of Leviticus and Old Testament law. You might skip over a book like Leviticus thinking, oh, I don't really know what this has to do with me, but it, it expresses so much important, importance of what we need to know about God. The Old Testament offers over 600 laws as it relates to ceremony and cleanliness and, and ritual of purity. Because here's the thing, God is holy, God is perfect, God is without blemish, God is is set apart, and we are impure, we are unclean, we are imperfect. And there's no denying that. Yet God desires to communicate with His people, He desires to have relationship with His people. He desires for them to communicate with Him and and meet with Him. And so if they desire to approach God, they must first go through this process of, of becoming pure. And it had so much to do with what they ate and what they wear, And the people they come in contact with and the things they touch or don't touch. And if you so that meant you you hung out with certain people and you avoided certain people. You wore certain things and you avoided certain things to wear. And so food and especially the table meal, the table meal in in this area of the country and at this time of, of their in history was so important. It demonstrated really doing theology. How they ate a meal and with whom they ate this meal represented what they believed about God. It was a symbol of serious friendship and relational intimacy. And so you have Levi, this tax collector. They were traitors of God, traitors of their people. They were cheaters, and they were at the table with God's Messiah. And Jesus spent the evenings over. If you read through the Gospels, you will see that Jesus spent his evenings and his days and his mornings and afternoons over the, at the table over a lot of bread, a lot of boiled fish, and a big pitcher of wine. I mean, if you read through the Gospels, you will see this is how he spent his time. Eating and drinking with someone was a sign of friendship. And Jesus did it so much that he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton and a friend of sinners. And some may even say this is the very reason why Jesus was crucified, because he did this so much. And it wasn't what he did, but but who he did it with. His company, the people on the guest list at the dinners and meals that he shared. What Jesus clearly sets out to do is to demonstrate that community and friendship with sinners is the best cultural way possible at this time to say, you're my friend. Over a meal, this is how he demonstrated it. Jesus ate with sinners and he extended friendship. And in particular, tax collectors, outcasts, cheaters. People that betrayed their own family and their own country. Here's some ways that you can build friendship like this. One is, is through recognition. There's something so great about somebody remembering your name. Isn't this true? Have you ever been encouraged by somebody remembering your name after meeting you once or twice? If you have a hard time remembering someone's name, sit down and have a meal with them. Take them out to coffee, and I promise you'll remember their name. And this recognition has so much power. Maybe in part in our culture today, this is one of the ways that, that we demonstrate that we truly care by remembering their name, their story, their where they work and what they do. Demonstrate that we are actually listening to them. Another is through reconciliation. He pursues friendship. Jesus pursues friendship with people that are alienated from God. Those who are estranged from God. Those who are sinners. He spends time with them. If you have hurt somebody, if you have been hurt by somebody, and if there is any room in your life to to take a step, if God's calling you to take a step to pursue peace with this person, the meal is a great place to do that. The meal is, is, the, is the opportunity, it gives us the opportunity to reconcile, to build a bridge between enemy and friends. By seeking to recognize and to reconcile with sinners, Jesus is doing two things. He, and we both need to wrestle with this. He welcomes the stranger, and he confronts the self-righteous. You know, if you have felt like a stranger before God, if you have, if you have in your life felt like, but look at my track record, look at my character, look at who I am, I'm not that that holy person, that really put-together person. I have mistakes in my life. In this passage, Jesus wants you to see this extension of friendship to you. And we need to wrestle with that. No one is too far away from God to receive His grace, to embrace His grace, to be accepted by Him. No one is too far from God. I don't know where you are. Many of you I, I don't know and I've never had a meal with. I don't know what's troubling you. I don't know what, is, what your hang-ups are. I don't know what is that one thing Is saying, yeah, God is great and He's loving, but, but there's still these things in my life. There's still these unsettled things. There's still these things that I, that I worry about and I'm really, I'm not 100% sure that God sees me as a true friend, as, a, as His child, as a recipient of His full love and, and grace. Well, I want you to hear something here in, in Luke 5 that Jesus extends friendship, that he hangs out with sinners, that he pursues them, even to the extent of of being accused of being a drunk, of being a glutton. See, Jesus, you do this way too much. Have you ever been accused of doing anything too much? What are people going to accuse you of doing too much when you die? Well, Jesus was accused of doing too much of accepting people who didn't deserve to be accepted, befriending people who weren't good friends, of eating with people too much, of reconciling, of recognizing, of spending time. So I hope that this confronts you in a way that Jesus is a friend of sinners. But it confronts us in another way. You see, Jesus confronts the, the religious people, the Pharisees, the ones that had it all together. If you feel that, if you have felt loved by God and privileged, by, privileged from God, because of your record and your character, if there is some reason that God should look on you with favor because of the good that you have done, I hope you remember this passage. Because no one is too close to God that they don't need His grace, that they don't need His friendship. No one is too close where they have, they don't need this forgiveness that Christ offers. And eating around this meal is it's, this, it's a unifying practice that like no other that builds human community that draws people together and human community is meant to be a demonstration of the grace of god and that's what jesus is creating you have 21 meals a week or day no week <laughs> maybe 21 a day little meals 21 maybe if you eat you know three times a day you have 21 meals a week what would it look like for you to use two of those meals, three of those meals, to intentionally do this, to recognize and reconcile, to build community, to express the grace and acceptance and love of God in that context, to welcome strangers, to ask for forgiveness, to extend kindness, to be with people that you, would, you have no reason to be with? Can you use two or three meals to, to give some evidence that people would accuse you of being a friend of sinners. And can you use these meals to, to build friendship or to welcome a sinner? And when you invite someone, you don't need to tell them which category they fall into. That's the great thing. You can say, I'm, I'm wanting to pursue friendship. I'm wanting to pursue forgiveness. I'm wanting to pursue relationship. I'm wanting to pursue you because you're different than me. And I want God to break down those walls, those, the pride that I have that says, you can't come into my home. We can't be friends. Who is that person? I mean, this is an important question. Who is the tax collector in your neighborhood? Is it the, is it the, the, the promiscuous? Is it the sexually immoral? Is it the irresponsible? Is it the, is it the addict? Is it the annoying, just the person you don't like to be around? Who is that person? I'm going to be quiet now because many of you are my neighbors. So. <clears throat> you know, this will be. This is difficult. This is really tough. And it brings us to our second point, and these are the obstacles of the meal. The obstacles in the meal, because there are obstacles. You know, when the Pharisees are experiencing uh, in, in this is, is an obstacle. Sharing a meal, they're wanting uh, to place this obstacle before Jesus, they are troubled. They have an obstacle in front of them and in their life that prohibits them and keeps them from extending friendship to sinners. And they're wanting Jesus to also put this obst- have this obstacle in His life. He, in their in their eyes, is is crossing this boundary that they shouldn't cross, that He shouldn't cross. They say, "Why do you eat and drink with these people, with these sinners, with these tax collectors?" So here's the obstacle. The obstacle is being judged. The grumbling, the questioning, why are you doing this? The name-calling, you're a drunk, you're a glutton, you're a friend of sinners. The, what, it, what is troubling them? So when you think about your, the habit of what it would take to be hospitable, to use three meals of your 21 to, to welcome the, the sinner, the, the outcast, um, the person who's not like you, when you think of what obstacles... There might be to showing hospitality in your home. What are those? What obstacles come to your mind? Maybe it's not the ones that Jesus is, is facing. Maybe it's not uh, ridicule. Maybe it's not accusation from people like, why are you doing this? But maybe it's other things. You see, I'll call this collateral damage. I mean, hospitality and eating with others has colla- inherent collateral damage. I mean, there are things that it will cost you. It will hurt in order to do this. Showing hospitality will always have this. Everyone loves the idea that church is this place of community and friendship. Many of you have pursued Holy Cross for that very reason. You want to be in community. You want to have friendship with others. You want to be connected in your life to other people. And every, many people love this idea. And I happen to love Holy Cross for this very reason. I think we do a really great job in a lot of ways in that area. But it's not perfect. And the idea of Christian community is awesome. Until we are in com- Christian community for long enough to realize that it's very difficult, and people are annoying, and people are different, and people are inconsiderate, and people aren't good listeners or gracious speakers, or uh, they're selfish, or they're needy, or they're high maintenance, or they have problems and baggage, or they do things different. You know, Christian community is wonderful, but it's hard, and there are many obstacles. Here's what I can promise you. And Give me a second to flesh it out. If you invest in the Holy Cross, this is your church home, and you go full throttle. And what I mean by that is you say, this is my church. I'm going to give selflessly. selflessly. I'm going to give graciously. I'm going to engage in community. I'm going to meet meet people that are different from me and, and extend them kindness and grace. I'm going to spend my time with them. I'm going to serve in ministry, even when it's not convenient. Here's what I can promise. In six months, you're going to want to leave. In six months, maybe less, there's going to be something that happens where you're going to say, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be let down, you're going to be hurt, maybe by somebody. Something's going to annoy you. You're going to think, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. This isn't what I was getting into. This isn't what I thought would happen. I thought that this would be just wonderful, and you're going to want to leave. And and obviously, if you're hearing this, it's because you haven't. But I bet you've probably experienced something to that extent. Disappointment, regret, hurt feelings, um, let down. Maybe there's people even in this room that you used to spend a lot of time with and you don't anymore. And in that moment, I think that you're presented with an obstacle to Christian community. And they'll always be there. And Jesus is calling us to to rearrange life around him and how we look at community and how we spend time with others. And when we do encounter him and and know him and pursue him and trust in him and apply real theology in our life, we will, will not be able to remain the same as when we came in. Early in our in our ministry when we planted the church, there was a family who came to our church and and we talked a lot about this. And um, they invited me over one night and, and they said, Can you just come over? We have some things we want to talk about. And this that's like and I always ask, Yeah, can you just prime me a little bit about what's on your mind? And they say, No. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is like the worst, this is like the worst. If you know me, this is just like the worst thing in ministry. Come over to my house, we're gonna serve you a meal, and I'm not gonna tell you what it's about. So I'm thinking, and and, and I get get there, and and we sit down at the meal, and and the the woman is just weeping. I mean, tears running down her face. And the husband is consoling her, and and she says, we've been listening to you for a long time, and talking about community, and talking about what God desires for us, and what it means to live as people connected to Jesus, and connected to others. And she's just crying, and I'm thinking, "What, what is going on? And she says, do you realize that if we do that, how much in our life will change and, I, and I'm like, oh, this is a good meeting. And I'm thinking, I think that's the point. I think that's the point. And the things that, the obstacles that we have in our life to, to, to genuine Christian community, it's, they're painful. I mean, they stretch us, they, they, they tell us to change, to die to ourselves, to live for God, and to, to bless others, and to forgive, and to be kind, and to be gracious and to think the best of others, and, and to, to be eager to edify other people. I think that's the point. I think the point is, is that this context of friendship and community around the meal is a crucible for change. And we can't stay the same. And there's something beautiful about seeing Christians suffer. Now, now hear me on this, like, I actually love it with, with, with as, as much gentleness as I can muster. Like, when you are hurting because, I, uh, because God is changing you, I will, I will, I will cry with you and, and pray for you, but secretly I am so excited because you're becoming more like Jesus. And that's the point. And there's something about Christian community that provides the context for, for this kinds of, kind of change, that nothing else really can provide that kind of power, to be more like Jesus. We are confronted with these obstacles. Well, let's think of some of, the, of these obstacles. Being hospitable, opening up our, uh, the table to be with others, having people in your home, pursuing meals together will have collateral damage. Here's some. People will spill food on your carpet. That's why we have all tile in our, in our new home. People will, will they'll ruin and break your stuff. Some conversations will be very unenjoyable. That's collateral damage. And will cause you to not want to do it anymore. We had people over, uh, some neighbors. They're not here. We had some, which is fine. And they probably won't listen to this. Uh, we had some neighbors over uh, to our house, and it was really great. And, 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 and uh, had a wonderful meal. And, and then they said, we need to do this again sometime. And you always love to hear that. And then they said, next time, why don't you come over to our house? And we said, great. And I remember my wife and I talking about this, saying, I think God's doing stuff here. Like, this is great. This is, see, it's happening the way that we thought it would happen. We open up our home. We open up our table. And they come. We have a great time. And now they're inviting us into their life. we go over to their home for dinner. And I kid you not, 99% of the time, they were just like screaming and yelling at each other and like bickering with one another. And it was the worst meal we've ever had. And it was the most uncomfortable thing. And I regret this so much because... We haven't sat down with them since. And it's like, I realize this is, like, this, is the, this is what is hard. This is among the other things that are hard about it. Because if you say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to step out in faith. And I'm going to be gracious and generous with my home. And I'm going to pursue meals with others. You won't want to sometimes. And sometimes it will be really unenjoyable. And you'll say, that's it. I'm just going to hang out with the people that I know. I'm just going to hang out with my friends. I'm just gonna, I don't want any more surprises. That's collateral damage. And we need to grow out of that. Another thing is you'll lose time. I mean, you'll have to provide time in your week and in your life to, to do this. Another thing is you'll lose money. You may think, I want to do this. I want to do two meals a week. I want to do three meals a week. What if every week we had someone over to our house? Wait, who's going to pay for this? Maybe we can take donations. Maybe we can do potluck. You know, so you start thinking, what burdens can we put on our guests to, to make it less burdensome on us? This will cost you. There's real collateral damage. What else is on that list? You can think of those for you. What are the obstacles in your home and in your life? Maybe here's another one, and I think this is very real. Maybe one of the biggest reasons why we don't do it, and it's simply because because you literally don't have to. You don't have to. People will find food. They'll find lodging. They'll find friendship. They don't need you. Well. You know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, even a hundred years ago, hospitality was very, very different. Think about this. In this time, in this, in, in, in this scripture, the context of this, you couldn't travel to another town. You literally could not travel to another town without someone showing hospitality to you, without someone taking you in, without someone giving you a bed, without someone giving you a meal. You couldn't travel, you couldn't go anywhere. Where would you eat? Where would you sleep? And that's why the hotel industry is called the hospitality industry, because that's what they do. They take that burden off of you. And they, well, we'll give you a place to lodge. We'll even cook you breakfast. We'll clean your clothes. You don't have to have anyone in your home ever. There are restaurants all over the place. There are hot hotels everywhere. You don't need to be hospitable. And maybe that's the biggest obstacle to our hospitality is that we really don't need to. And so we've forgotten about how to care and how to do it. Hospitality in our culture may be diminishing and some, some new homes nowadays are even being built in a floor, as a floor plan without a dining room. This happened more and more frequently. Maybe as, as time has gone on, your dining room table has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And now us, we even see we have this big dining room table and then we have a kitchen table and then we've got an island and it's like, that's where we're eating our meals now. It's like, we pull up a chair and sit at the island and eat and then go about our business. It may be diminishing, I think, in our culture, but, but God's plan and purpose for gospel-driven eating is still so important and the same as he has designed it to be. We see it in this passage. Look at, look at verse 30 through 32. The Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, Why do you eat and drink? Why do you do this with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We want to eat like this because of the power of the meal. Let's look at the power of the meal. Food is important to God. And God has a special joy in creating us to be people who eat. Exhibit A, think of the tongue. 10,000 microscopic taste buds that pick up sweet and salty and savory and bitter and sour and everything yummy. This is a powerful organ to give you joy and pleasure and satisfaction. God has created us for this. Think of Genesis. God created all of creation. He put man and woman in the garden. And the center of all creation, he put food. So God's only rule was centered around eating. The Bible ends in the book of Revelation with this big feast. Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine. And a lot of it. He goes to a wedding and he's the party 120 gallons of wine after everyone had already drunk everything they can drink. 120 gallons. Usually you have the good wine and then you kind of bring out the, uh, the bad stuff because no one knows the difference. And, and the host of the party even said, Jesus, usually they bring out the, 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 the good wine first, but you have saved it for the end. Jesus is a party animal. He's accused of doing it too much. He is the the host of the feast. He is the master of the banquet meal. Jesus was accused of being a drunk and a glutton because he spent his ministry eating. The majority of Jesus' ministry, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is either coming from a meal, he is in a meal, or he's going to a meal. That's his ministry strategy. Eat. Because the meal represents power. You need food for life. You need it for energy. You need it for work. You need it for play. You need it to be productive. You cannot live without food. People have tried. Lots of people have tried to live without food. You know, when India was becoming a nation and going through their revolution, Gandhi, he's known for what? For, for not eating. And I learned out that Gandhi, it was 21 days that he fasted. I feel like I could do that. 21 days, that's not very long. Recently, there's been a Seattle woman who is is pursuing this, this uh, experiment. She believed that humans could live off of nothing but water and sunlight. Seattle. <laughs> and so she pursued this, this experiment, and you know what happened. It didn't work. She lost 30 pounds. She became very sick, and then she, after 47 days, she said, I think I need food. And she went back to eating. And a doctor who was monitoring her progress and her health at the time, actually, he gave this comment, and he said, people are delusional to think that they can escape the laws of biology. And Jesus is saying something to these sinners, to these religious people, and preserved in his word, he's speaking to us, and he's saying, there are laws of salvation, there are laws of eternal life, there are spiritual things, and I am the power of salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Jesus is saying, It all, without me, there is no power. Without me, there is no salvation. You see, food is a parable, it's, it's, it can be a parable that we can draw from when thinking about our dependence on God. And this is one of the reasons why uh, there's the spiritual discipline of fasting, of not eating. To draw us to remembrance of our dependence on God, when we are hungry, we remember, "God, as I need food, I need you. As I feast and, and thirst and, and I'm satisfied in food, that's how you satisfy me as well. If you go to a restaurant and you see and, you, and it's a really nice restaurant and it's fancy, and you look at the menu, and there are no prices, it, it, it says really one of two things: The owner is very gracious. And he just likes having friends over, and he's just going to give you a free meal. Or, the meal is actually very expensive. And and, and object, you know, you can't, you know, it's just very, very expensive, and, and, and uh, you know that you're not getting out of there with, with a shirt on your back. Well, listen, I want, I want to look at this verse here, because in Isaiah, we see that the meal is not just one of those two things, that the parable of the meal for us and Jesus, but it's actually both of these things. Um, look at first at Isaiah 25. This is a prophecy from God. He's saying, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all of the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Now look later in that, in that book, in, in Isaiah 55. So he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. God is supplying all the meal for us. And what's on the menu? Isaiah says, What's on the menu? What's the main course? Death. Death is going to be eaten up, death is going to be swallowed. The effects of sin, the shame, the guilt, the lack of friendship with God, the enmity, the estrangement, the curse. Of not pleasing God in all that we do, the, the the shadow that is over us, the covering that is cast over all people, the pain, that is going to be eaten up. It is going to be swallowed. Spiritual sickness, shame and guilt, alienation from God. And this is what Jesus says in Luke five. He says, The people are sick. The people are dying. The people are, in fact, dead in their hearts. And they need a physician. And what is the price? Well, it's free for us. This is what Isaiah says it says, Come with no money, it's free. But Isaiah also says, It's very expensive. And so, in this expensive restaurant, it means both of these things the owner is very generous, but it's also very, very expensive. Jesus prepares the meal. Jesus buys, he pays, he supplies the feast in his own body and blood. Jesus is the, the master of the feast, the master of the banquet. The meal has power, power to save. You know, why, why a meal? Consider, consider what we have come to know as the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. Each week we participate in this brief meal where we take bread and juice and we, we do this in remembrance of Christ and his work for us. You know, why a meal? I mean, think about it. God could have, he could have done anything he wanted. Do this in remembrance of me. So he says, eat in remembrance of me. He could have done anything. I mean, like, snap your fingers in remembrance of me. You know, so part of our service could be like snapping our fingers. And that could be just like equally as, as memorial and, and powerful. But you no, know, he said, I want you to eat. Why, why food? He has a meal with his friends the night that he was betrayed and arrested and killed. He says, do this in remembrance of me. He takes bread and, he, and the wine. And it's, it's because of this, is, is that God welcomes us into his home, to his table through the blood of Jesus. The hospitality of God embodied in the fellowship of Jesus at the table is a sign of his generosity and grace. And we are to imitate this generosity. He has given himself to us. He says, come and eat. You didn't pay for this bread. You didn't supply this meal. And it will satisfy you. This is what Jesus is saying in Luke 5. It'll it'll actually heal them. It'll save them. And they need me. And Jesus is demonstrating this to us. The meal is so important. He's saying, I want you to be generous in this way. I want you to gather around the meal. I want you to lose money. And I want you to, to wear out your carpet. And I want you to sacrifice time and energy. I want you to create this space where the gospel can be proclaimed, where, friends, where, where sinners could be welcomed, where strangers could be treated like friends. We do this because he has welcomed us to his table. Because all of us were at one time outsiders. We were outcasts. We were spiritually sick. And he invited us to his table. Free of charge. We couldn't pay the bill. Think of this. God created. I often am asked this question why did God create? If you've ever been a part of like a really deep spiritual conversation, eventually it gets to this question. So why did God create us in the first place? God created us and all the world that we might eat with him, that we might sit at his table and be a friend and be forgiven it calls us to to demonstrate and imitate this generosity. We need to be in this rhythm. As part of this rhythm series, we're looking at how do we live out our theology? Well, if we believe that we are a stranger, that God has welcomed us to the table, and the meal has incredible significance, then we will eat the Lord's Supper with, with great joy and celebration for what He has done for us, and we will open up our table to strangers to friends, to sinners, to people that are not like us, so that the grace of God could be demonstrated in that meal. It has tremendous power for that. Expressing our dependence on God is part of this rhythm. When we eat, the reason why we pray before we eat is to express our dependence on God. When we eat, we should express our dependence on other people as well, recognizing that we need community, that these people are sharpening us to grow we're expressing gratitude for the people who have processed our food and, and, and cooked our food and, and prepared our food, who grow our food. We recognize the power of food to give energy and to, to be a context for people to know Jesus and to hear of the good news at the table. It reminds us that we need to reorient our lives around, not ourselves but around Christ and to be grateful for the community that he's given to us and asked us to be a blessing. In the next 21 meals, have, use two or three of those to be intentional to build friendship and community with other people. Let's pray.